Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show... I will be speaking with David Gergen about his new book, Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. David Gergen has served as a White House advisor to four United States presidents of both parties. He is a professor of public service and founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School. He serves as a senior political analyst for CNN. In addition, he is a New York Times bestselling author. David, welcome to That Said. Michael, good to be here, sir. So I'd like to start off by you telling us something about your upbringing. You write in the book that you grew up on a dirt road in the segregated South, but was fortunate enough to have a dad who was the chair of a math department and a mom who was a writer. So tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Okay, terrific. Well, it, it, was, uh, it was very Southern in, in the beginning. I, you know, I was a real fan of Dixie there for a while. It was very segregated. Um, we were told that one of the grand lies of that, that time was, well, this is the way blacks like it, this way Negroes like it. You know, everybody's happy, you know, which obviously was not, it was untrue, uh, as I learned later in life. Um, and, um, but I did, did, because I came from an intact family with strong family ties. Um, that really helped to bolster me. Um, I did, I was thinking very, very seriously early on about becoming a professional athlete, especially a baseball player. And um, I'd, I'd had some success. I was a pretty good pitcher for a while. I Pony League, Little League, that sort of thing, went to state championships. But then when I just between junior high school and high school, I grew about six inches in less than a year. And I became very awkward. I lost my coordination. So when I tried out for the high school baseball team, not realizing how much coordination I'd lost, uh, the first the first tryout was uh, because it was raining. We were in a gym, and I had a catcher, and I threw about three or four balls and got him reasonably well, did reasonably well. But then on the fifth pitch, I just lost control of the damn thing, and it went sailing. Ball went sailing, and it went through a window. That wasn't the worst of it, Michael. It went through a window on the second floor, <laughs> and I knew my my athletic days were over. Uh, and I became and I became a sports writer. I I, I covered the teams. And wrote up pieces for the uh, the local paper, the Durham Morning Herald. And so after a ball game on Friday night, a football game on Friday night, you know, we had sort of Friday night lights kind of approach there. And after I'd, I'd be pacing up and down the field, you know, taking notes during the game. Halftime, I'd go up a rickety ladder to a radio booth uh, and give analysis. Here I was 16 years old giving analysis. Uh, but in any event, then when the game was over around 10, my dad would take me to the, uh, to the newspaper offices and I'd sit down to a typewriter and go, I, I would hunt and pack. I had to have a story done by midnight. We went to press at midnight and uh, a couple of journalists or people who had gone to journalism school at Chapel Hill uh, nearby uh, would come and coach me. They were great coaches. It was a wonderful experience. I became, and I, I thought maybe I'd become a journalist when I was 
Um, when I was on the way to college in 1959, Nikita Khrushchev came to the U.S. to visit President Eisenhower. And my newspaper, the Morning Herald in Durham, uh, petitioned for and got me a, a ringside seat as a journalist covering the, the, the summit visit. So I, and I loved that. It was very exciting at DC, you know, with all the cars and the hoopla. That, that was great fun. So I, I, I leaned more and more toward journalism. Um, but I wasn't quite sure, and I wasn't going to go back to North Carolina to practice journalism. But I wanted to, if I did it, I wanted to do it on on a, a different stage. But anyway, that got me started, and I went on to uh, some very good schools. My older brothers were quite smart, and they they opened the door. I was an affirmative action case at uh, at Yale. I came in on affirmative action because they were looking for white Southerners at that time. No more, but they were then, um, and that's how I got in. And I afterwards over, I went to law school. And then I signed up for the Navy for three and a half years. Uh, in the South, it's, it's, you always answer the call to duty. That's sort of a Southern tradition. You know, stars or bars, you answer the call. Um, so I went in for three and a half years and came out. Um, I, I was assigned my last year in, uh, in the Navy. I was recruited to come back to Washington, D.C. from Japan, where I was home ported. Um, and uh, there and back in Washington, they were assembling a team of, of young officers to help reform the draft. The, 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 there had been a new draft system put in by Nixon. Was an all, he was moving toward an all-volunteer force, and they had a random lottery. They ran their first random lottery, uh, and it was a mess. It was chaotic, uh, and, it, and it turned out to be just a gigantic mess. Here's what they did. Lewis Hershey was head of the draft. He was sort of the J. Edgar Hoover of the draft, if you'd like. Um, and he got a bowl, and he filled it with capsules. The first capsule win was number one. January 1 went in first, and January 2 all the way through the end of January, and then February, March all the way through the end of December, December being on top, January being on the bottom, put the bowl in the closet, came out, started up a little bit, reached into the top, December uh, number one. Number two was, you know, November. Number three was uh, August. They were all tilted. All the top, all the top capsules were late in the year, and they were the ones that got the lowest numbers. And that, if you got a really low number, you went to Vietnam. So it was no joke what number you got. And the system was no joke. Uh, it, but there were some statisticians at uh, University of Michigan who were graduate students, and they they filed lawsuits saying it wasn't random. It wasn't truly random. The president hadn't achieved his game, game, his aim. Well, at that point, Hershey, the head of the draft, uh, I think, um, ripped away their their deferments and sent them to Vietnam because they were troublemakers. So that's that's the way life was in those days. But um, um, but anyway, our little team. I learned a lot about government with that little team. And the first thing we had to do was come up with a random lottery. How do you make it random? And we searched around and found the best statistician in the country named Tukey. He was at Princeton. And he said, well, it's not as hard as it looks. What you do is you get a computer and you randomly generate the, the day, numbers three, January through end of December. You randomly generate how you put them in the bowl. So they're all mixed together. And nobody can say uh, that's fixed. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But some senator's son is going to come out with number 325. You know, and it's going to look fixed. We're going to be accused of fixing. So here's my suggestion. We get two bowls. We put, we randomly generate the way the numbers one through 365 go in one bowl. We randomly, randomly generate how January 1 to the end of the calendar year goes the second bowl. You choose simultaneously from both bowls. So you match your, you match the, the two bowls and that number, number 14 has a, has a date on it. So anyway, 
And, and so everybody agreed that was a good way to do it. And I said, I have one other suggestion, if I might. And that is on the day of the drawing, listen, let's find two young, very innocent looking young girls, blonde if possible, to fairly short skirts, but just innocent. They've got to be innocent. Um, and they'll let them do the drawing, uh, which they did. They were the first Vanna Whites. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> uh, and it worked. Because everybody thought, well, you know, they've got these two bowls, they've got these young women, it's okay. And, and people felt better about the process, all of which taught me two things. Uh, one is that government policy and government decision-making really is important. It is a question of who does, who doesn't see it frequently. But secondly, there's an element of showbiz to government. No matter what you do, you've got to have some showbiz. You've got to understand how to connect to people, how to, how to have people trust you in what you're trying to achieve. So early lessons. Uh, but that was the beginning. I'm, I'm sorry I went on so long, but that was the beginning. No, um, that, that was great. And I have to say, I've never won a lottery in my life, save <laughs> for the year that my draft lottery number came up in the in the low 300s. Uh, that, well, that's good. That was that's good. good. Didn't have to go. That, I didn't. I, and I don't know what I would have done if I did get a, a low number. Probably would have gone to law school or something, but. You could get a deferment. That, that's what a lot of elite folks did. And, why, and that's why it still wasn't a totally fair system. No, that's right. So you had this long and winding road from baseball to journalism. You yes. you tried to be a lawyer in a, in a white shoe firm, realized that you yes. didn't really care which corporation won. And yes. you started your political career with Governor Terry Sanford at North yes. Carolina. And you wrote some interesting stuff about what you learned, and it's apropos of the point you just made. So tell us a bit about North Carolina Good Neighbor Council and what that taught you. Sure. Well, while I was still in school in 1960, uh, North Carolina elected Terry Sanford as its governor. Terry was a progressive, um, charismatic figure, very much our Southern Jack Kennedy. Uh, you know, people looked at him with that kind of, um, uh, um, I don't know, ardor. He was he was very popular in the beginning. But in those days, the early 60s, as you'll remember, uh, when the busing started and people, you know, white kids started coming to the South um, and very bravely stood up to the segregationists. But there was a lot of violence. And, uh, and Terry set up what he called good neighbor councils. And what the the idea was across the state, we would try to go to major city, all the major cities and many of the um, more moderate sized cities to set up special councils made up of blacks and whites um, who would um, agree to work together on public education and on jobs and creating more jobs. And the unwritten uh, mandate was to, to keep the racial peace in the state and not have a lot of the violence we were seeing in Alabama and Mississippi and places like that. So anyway, I volunteered when I, I was, I was going to be an intern. I volunteered. So I'd like to go work with a good neighbor council. It seems, seems to me like it's doing important work. And I wound up and I did get the assignment. Uh, and I spent three, I spent actually three summers in, uh, doing this. I was, uh, there was a man who was running the, the whole good neighbor effort for Terry, but fellow named David Coltrane, who had been a, grown up as a segregationist, staunch segregationist. Uh, hard, hard, hard line Southerner. But then he, he uh, changed his mind. He had a change of heart and became an ardent integrationist. And it, it, going around with him was one of the finest experiences of my life. I was his driver. I was driving Mr. Dave and I was his point. I was his chief 
policy person. I was his chief communications person. Uh, you name it, uh, I was doing I was doing that for him. We became dear friends. Uh, at any event, that it was just a very meaningful experience to be able to to work on a problem where you actually saw the people who were getting it were affected by it, and you saw how much how much well-run organizations can make a difference in the lives of people. It was also, I also had a searing experience with it. And that is a friend of mine, we went, we went to high school together uh, was, was during those summers was a pastor to a black church in North Carolina. Uh, and he was, you know, he, he associate pastor and he and I decided that there was a Klan rally that was going to take place in the Southeast Southwestern portion of the state. And we decided we'd like to go to, go to the Klan rally, and he was going to bring a tape recorder to be able to, to tape what, what happened and bring it back to the church members. So maybe take some of the fear out of what they, they, they've experienced in life. So we, we and two other guys joined us. We had a car of four, and we drove onto the parking lot where the rally was going to take place. And there were cops all over the place on just outside the gates. But inside the gates, there were no cops. Inside where the rally was, there were no cops. There were a bunch of brown-shirted, beefy-looking guys who looked mean as hell. Uh, and they were keeping order. So we went up to the edge of the land rally. They then took the tape recorder from us, smashed it up. And we stayed on for till the end of the rally. Then we went back to our car. And it was surrounded by maybe three or 400 people, all angry, all angry we were there, uh, that we had trespassed essentially onto their territory. They wanted to make sure we never came back. They wanted to teach us a lesson. So they started dancing on, on the roof of the car. They were beating up on the windows. They said, we're going to get you guys. And this was shortly after you know, the uh, murders of Schwerner and Cheney, the three, the three kids in uh, Mississippi. So the, the word was out, you know, there's murder in, this, in, in their eye. Um, and so it was scary. It was really, really scary. I was uh, riding shotgun, and I told our driver, I said, listen, we only have one shot. We've only one thing we can do. Turn on the ignition, hit the gas pedal very, very gently, but start moving this car. We've got to get the hell out of here. It's the only way we're going to get out of here. You've got to get the car to move, but you don't want to run over anybody because that would make it much, much, much worse. So we did, and they started to part company. And then we realized as we got out toward the highway, they all got jumped into their cars, and they chased us. They chased us down this big highway. And, you know, again, we were just scared to hell. Um, but eventually we got away from them and I, uh, it, it was a telling experience. I learned, Michael, that in trying to make things right in the world, it's important not to be, not to be disrespectful. They, they thought we were being disrespectful, um, of them. And I, and I think we were also being, and I, this is my fault. We were being reckless. We were, we were testing the system far more than we should have. So yeah, I, I do think when you're trying to do good things in the world, you need to do it with a great deal of um, respect and a certain amount of humility uh, around people you don't know very well. Um, and, you and you know, they live their lives in suffering and you live a pretty good life. You need to be very careful how you address them. So it was a good experience. And I, I will tell you this. It, it, it's a privilege for any American to work in the White House. I don't care what White House it is. So I've been really blessed with a number of White House assignments over time. But the experience, the public, the public service experience that was most fulfilling to me was working on civil rights in North Carolina. Mm. You say in answering the question, why did you write this book? Yes. You say that you had dreamed for a long time that you could write a book 
that you could pass on to the next generations of key leadership lessons that you had stockpiled from a half century of public service. But as John Lennon's saying, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. The plan for the book kept getting backseated yeah. for, for other things. But you're right. However, in the past few years, the dream took on great urgency because you felt the world that we have known and the institutions and traditions built by earlier Americans was rapidly slipping away. So can you talk to that, please, David? Sure, sure. I I, I think we live in much more urgent times now than we did, say, in the 50s and 60s. There was a period of time, Michael, from when the World War II ended, that for 15 to 20 years, uh, the country, we had a very happy populace. People were very satisfied with the quality of governance in the country. And indeed, they looked up to the people who were running it. When Dwight, during that period of time when Dwight Eisenhower was president for two terms, eight years, Eisenhower averaged put approval rating. His average approval rating was 65%, average. You know, and today, you know, Joe Biden is around 40, and other, Trump was very low 40s for a while. Uh, breaking 50 is regarded as, you know, almost impossible for a, a current president. So I do think that uh, the trust level, the trust in government, the trust in leadership, the trust in institutions has gone down sharply. Uh, the, the interesting that the institution that is most, most uh, admired today was one that was under heavy pressure during the Vietnam War, and that was the military. You know they were they were they were spit upon during the Vietnam War, but now we we celebrate our our military leaders, and I, I think they've earned that. By the way, but but it's um, it is different. So in any event, I think it's really really important that each generation pass on to their predecessors and pass on to their future, especially pass on to their future leaders what they learned. You know what were the lessons learned? How does it apply to those lessons of the past? How do they apply today? I think there's some things about leadership that have evolved, have changed a lot. For example, uh, the world is moving so quickly today in so many different ways. You have to be much more adaptive than you were uh, in years past. You have to move quickly with the changing circumstances. Leadership, the success of leaders depends so much on the context in which they find themselves. And that context can shift rapidly in a way that you need to be able to jump on it. And, and be ready. And be ready, by the way, when bad news is coming. If you can look over the horizon, there are so many things that we should have foreseen that, that we didn't act on. Climate has become one of those uh, things now. There are too many. A uh, good friend, Max Bezerman from the Harvard Business School, wrote a book about predictable surprises, predictable surprises. And that that is a real bane for a lot of people running institutions now. You don't you don't take seriously what's coming at you as in climate, and then you get hit at the last minute, and then you have to scramble, and then it's a mess. Um, and you you've got to sort of be better. You, you you've got to have one eye on the past and one eye on the future. And I do believe, as Churchill argued, that a person who can see farther back, a leader who sees farther back into history, is better at looking forward and seeing what's coming uh, in the future. So I interviewed John. Della Volpe, our um, friend from Harvard, he wrote a book called Fight, and he was similarly alarmed about the current state of affairs, but he believed that his polling indicated that the younger generation, Gen Z, had the potential to 
turn things around. And I'm wondering from your perch in the uh, Kennedy School Center for Public Leadership, which you launched, do you have that same optimism or do you see us on a continuous dot downward spiral? No, I don't see on a continuous spiral. I do believe, I I, I tend to call myself a short-term pessimist, but a long-term optimist. In the short term, I think it's going to be very rough. Uh, we, we're going to come through a difficult election period, starting with the midterm, then going on to the general. Uh, we're in a period when, you know, we, we can, unless we take action, we're going to have irreversible damage on the, on the climate front. We're going to have, you know, periods when uh, authoritarian leadership is blossoming in various countries, as is already is. Real setback, apparently. Uh, and, and with Russia and, and Ukraine. But, but if you look at the totality of where things stand now, we're on a, a path downward. And I think that's going to continue for a few years. But in those few years, I do think already we're beginning to see glimmers of hope. And I see exactly what John sees. And that is the younger generations. And I would, I would start with a generation X, which feels very left out and has felt left out for a long time. People born between 1965 and 1980, they tend to think of themselves as being passed over by the World War II generation and by the millennials. And they're, they're resentful of that. And they have a lot to offer. I think they have, deserve a time at bat to be in, much more integrated into uh, our governing life, our civic life, far more rapidly than we are. But then there are the younger ones, the, the millennials and Gen Z. I think both of them, they're almost indistinguishable. But I think both of them offer great promise, considerable promise for the future. Uh, and let me just tell you about two groups that I think are particularly to keep an eye on and particularly important. One is, and what I'm, I'm favorably disposed to, partly because I have this view that the military has great, is a great training ground for, uh, for leadership in a democratic country. Uh, but if you, but if you, two groups. One is the young, the young veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. They are some of the, they are some of the best trained people I've met. They're some of the ones who are most ambitious for the country. They remind me so much of the World War II generation. You know, they, they came home, they peeled off their military uniforms and they got into civilian clothes and said, we're here to help. We're going to do whatever we can. Uh, I'm, I'm very involved in the launch and the continuation of a, of a group called With Honor. With honor, it's a nonprofit group, it's nonpartisan, and uh, I'm chair of their advisory board. Uh, disclosure, um, and their their purpose is to identify promising young women and men who might want to run for public office, starting with the U.S. Congress, and then we 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 call those out, and then we interview them, and those we think and uh, will be bipartisan. They have to take a pledge to bipartisanship if they're elected. Uh, then we try to help them financially. We try to help them get elected. And, you know, so far, we've had about an equal number of Republicans as Democrats, um, which is uh, pleasing. We don't want to be, you know, one or the other. Um, but what I'm saying is, I, and I, I see a growing number of other groups that are emerging. I just met with something called Leadership Now, which is popular and growing across the country, YPOs. Young presidents form organization. They're working a lot on leadership and getting people engaged. Uh, New Politics is a group that is identifies people who might want to work for the city council or run, you know, for, for to run for AG or something in a state. 
there are a lot of people like that. So the military veterans are one group. The other group that I think deserves a lot more um, uh, uh, focus, because I think they're doing some really extraordinary things, are those are the people, usually the people of color, who are joining up in nonprofit groups or joining up in, in, in social movements uh, to change the country. We haven't, we, we've, we, in, in the civil rights era, um, we had, you know, mostly black males and some, and some whites. Now we have a lot more whites, but very important, we have a lot of women, especially, I, th- I think that especially black women now occupy the moral high ground in the country. They're, they are calling attention to the in- disparities in and inequities we have. And uh, I think I don't agree with their politics. A lot of the politics, AOC is left, too left of me. But I celebrate her and others like her who are getting in the arena and trying to bring change. Change is very difficult. But we have increasingly, we have people that want to do it. And they're hitting the streets. Look at the way, look at the anger that's uh, built up so quickly in the street demonstrations about abortion. And, you know, we're going to see, you know, we're seeing all sorts of signs Historic, historically large groups out in the streets trying to pushing for change. Some of it will happen. It's going to be a long and slow process. But yes, John Del Volpe and I are on the same page. There's reason to be hopeful about the future. Well, from your lips to God's ears, as the expression goes. So I'd like to turn to the book. Its title is Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. Can you tell us a little bit about the selection of the title? Oliver Wendell Holmes has that famous quote, in our youth, our hearts were touched with fire. So talk a little about Holmes and in the choosing of this title, what were you trying to portray? That's exactly the the phrase, the quote from Holmes that formed the basis of hearts touched with fire, the title of of, uh, my new book. And, um, uh, here, here's the back, the back story, so, so to speak. And that is, uh, Otto Wendell Holmes Jr. was the son of a very prominent Bostonian physician. A family was very prominent. Uh, and when he was 23, when Holmes Jr. was 23, Lincoln issued his first call for volunteers for the Civil War. And Holmes, coming from a prominent, wealthy family, could have ducked. He easily could have ducked, just as Teddy Roosevelt's father ducked uh, and, uh, out of New York. And, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was always embarrassed that his father had, had, had not volunteered. Holmes did volunteer. Off to battle he went. Over the succeeding years, he was grievously wounded three times, um, seriously wounded. Uh, the last time he was left for, for dead on the battlefield. Uh, but miraculously, he survived. And 20 years later, he gave a speech on Memorial Day. Looking, reflecting on what that uh, that experience as, as volunteers, uh, what that experience uh, meant to people like him, what it meant to him, and what it meant to his fellow citizens uh, who had gone to war, and he said, "We were blessed. We were blessed with the opportunity to live in the passions of our time. That a, a person should always experience the passions of your own time. That that gave you that enriched your life." And he said, we, referring to the, the people who volunteer, we had the great good fortune of our hearts being touched with fire. That's where it came from. It's a great quote, and it really sets up the book quite well. And I want to talk a little bit about what makes a, 
a good leader and how one becomes a good leader, which is the heart of the book. But I wanted to ask one question at the very outset of the leadership conversation, which is why does leadership matter or does leadership matter? You know, there's this determinist school that shouldn't look at history as a series of individuals, but rather in a broader historical context. You believe that leadership really matters. So tell us at the outset why so. There has been a, been an argument down through the ages on this very question. Um, and there have been people who, as you say, argue from the determinist school. Um, and, uh, they, you know, Tolstoy uh, was most, most clearly uh, defined by his belief um, that that man was yet but, but, a, but a pawn, essentially, of larger forces. Uh, and that you, that you just had to accept it. That if Napoleon had not invaded Russia, some other French general would have taken them in. Um, well, I think a lot of for the, the rest of us in the other camp, that removes any sense of human agency. That humans do have uh, a, a capacity to, to mold the future uh, and again, responsibility uh, that goes with that. There's, you just can't if you sit on the sidelines and just watch the world go by, thinking you can't make any difference. Uh, the world's going to get worse, not better. And we're seeing that in the United States uh, today. So Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who was a major historian, no longer with us. He was big Kennedy. Um, he was in the Kennedy White House. Uh, but And his father was a major, major American historian. Um, but but they believe that in, in human agency, that people matter. And then um, Schlesinger poses this question. Um, one night in New York, uh, a British politician got out of car, got out of a cab on the wrong side, and was struck down, nearly killed. Fourteen months later, there was an American politician who was sitting in an open car in Miami when a gunman came up and fired at point blank range. And had it not been for a woman who jarred the arm of the of the gunman, that American politician would have died uh, that uh, that day in Miami. Instead, the bullet struck the man next door, uh, and he died. Schlesinger's question is this. What if that British politician, Winston Churchill, had died that night? And what if that young American politician who missed that bullet, Franklin Roosevelt, had died in Miami? Would would our story as a people have been any different? Everybody who looks at that question agrees. Yes, it would have been far different. The the alternative that Churchill could never have given voice to the British Lion in the way Churchill did during the war. And the alternatives to to, to Roosevelt, uh, similarly, could never have done the same thing. Individuals do matter, you know, and and uh, frankly, you know, if you look, uh, John Keegan, who was a major uh, historian in Britain, said if you, if you really want to understand the 20th century, especially the first half of the 20th century, you can find it in the lives of six men. It was it was uh, Churchill, no, Stalin, Lenin, Mao Zedong, um, and one more. Then and then Churchill and Roosevelt, uh, and the first four were all dictatorial, and they took us into war. Had it not been for the last two, Churchill and Roosevelt, uh, we might all be speaking German now or Japanese. In defining leadership, you say there are key pillars. There is the leader, there yes. is the followers, yes. and there is the context. Yes. And you like very much the Pulitzer Prize winning historian Gary Wills' definition of leadership, which yes. is 
one who mobilizes others toward a goal shared by the leader and the followers. So what attracts you about this definition in particular? Well, I think the definition is more encompassing than a lot of definitions. And by the way, there is no single definition that, that defines the field. There are over 200 de- definitions floating around in the literature. But one, the reason I like the Gary Wills is it says, look, the, the leader has to have followers and has to have a capacity to, to persuade those followers to do tough things. Um, and, you know, followers matter, too. And the context matters. Jefferson once raised the question of why is it that the United, that America and France both had revolutions at, a, at about the same time, both trying to tear down the system uh, as, as it was? Why did the American Revolution succeed and the French Revolution fail? Well, he, he, uh, the argument is that, uh, the Jefferson argument is, that the Americans, by the time of our revolution, already had a lot of experience at the community level in townships and villages around the country at self-governance. You know, the, 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 and the, they were, they were already, it, it was already a democratic society when the revolution came on. So that they were, they were ready to embrace the American revolution. Whereas the French had been under the, under the thumb of the monarchs and of the church, the Catholic church, and felt very much as they were being managed from top down. Jefferson was saying, no, no, we need to come from below. But that's why the French failed. So you see, there was the difference in context, the difference in the followers really made a difference in how well you can lead. And that's what that, and you see that frequently at, um, look at context again. In 1940, Winston Churchill was a, was a washed up politician. He was an old man who had been cast to the sidelines. People thought he was too um, unreliable. He was, you know, he was too mercurial. He was too passionate. And they put him on the sidelines. That was 1940. The war came. The British were headed toward Dunkirk. And suddenly the British turned to Roosevelt, to Churchill. They went, they left behind. Churchill had been in the, in, in the sidelines. They brought him back to run the country and did a magnificent job. Well, the context had changed. Churchill couldn't get the job had it not been for the changing context. So you got to take that into account when you try to figure out as a leader, what are, you, what are the goals you're trying to pursue? What, you know, what goals do you want? To, it's really, really important to have some goals that are shared, just as, as Gary Wills would argue. Uh, but what, what goals, how do you, how do you determine that? Well, you need to figure out what's doable. You don't want to, you don't want to sit up there and say, well, we'll, We'll, we'll go to the moon in two years. You need to make it 10 years in order to give, as Kennedy did, uh, to, to make it realistic. You know, you're, you're not going to turn things upside down overnight. It just doesn't happen that way. And if you, if you're too much the dreamer, you know, and the, and the question, one of the big questions that I think historians will ask about Joe Biden as president is, did he, did he try to do too much in the early days? I thought he was off to a terrific start, but clearly things started to sputter. And I, and I came, one conclusion I reached, and I'm very interested in your view, Michael, is um, that he had such large ambitions and didn't have the, he didn't, he didn't have the, the, the context in which to, 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 to achieve those ambitions because, you know, the government was so divided and the Democrats didn't have the votes. You know, when, when, when Roosevelt went through the Great Depression and cured so much as he did, cured so much and passed big bills, 
He did it with a Congress that was hugely majority and huge Democratic majority in both the House and the Senate. That was what made it possible. So leadership is about having a pretty strong, firm judgment about what's possible. And go, we'll go for the possible. We will not go for the impossible. And by the way, if things are easy to do, let's have them solved down the road somewhere, to lower in the organization. The, the, the leader's responsibility is to take on things that are hard but doable. You say that the three key pillars of leadership are the leader, the followers, and the context. But you add this fourth element, which is goals, exactly what we've been talking about, which right. is critically important because of what you've just said. If you don't have achievable goals, you will effectively fail yeah. as a leader. Right. And you got to re- remember, if you take three goals over, let's say there are six things or eight things the country would sort of like, but you can only choose three. And you choose, okay, you choose those three. You've got four or five other sets of people who wanted something different and may oppose you right from the start. So it's, you've got to sort of figure out, okay, how, how can I put a coalition together that can actually make this happen? Instead of me looking like I'm, you know, I'm just banging my head against the wall. And people are going to respect you. One of the things that's important to do if you can when the lead, as your leader is to, is to seize upon those first few months. In government, we talk about the first 100 days, going back to FDR. Well, in business, people talk about the first 90 days. It's basically the same thing. And, they, and the argument is, as a CEO, you better get a couple of accomplishments under your belt in those first 90 days. That will build trust in your leadership. It will build respect for your leadership. But if you put six goals out there that you can't achieve and, and tick a lot of people off in the process, you know, you're not going to make it as a leader. So you have to be smart about these things. You don't have to be brilliant. It's not the, I, I, I think it's better to be, uh, I, I, you know, I think it's better to have your temperament right than just have your mind be a, and a genius. You know, when, when uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who was the most successful president of the 20th century, just days after he took office, he went over to see Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., who was celebrating his 92nd birthday. And they spent an hour together. And as, after Roosevelt left, Holmes turned to an associate and said, he has a second-class mind, but a first-class temperament. Second-class mind, but a first-class temperament. And that worked. He didn't have to be the brightest guy. I, you know, as I told you, my dad was a mathematician. And I grew up believing the smartest, the smart, the best leader would be the smartest person in the room. Uh, and then I went to Washington and discovered that's not true. The smartest people are not necessarily the best leader. And yet you have to be capable. You have to have a strong command of the subject, but you don't have to be a genius. You know, people who are really good CEOs tend to, you look back, look back on their college days, they tend to be sort of B or C, C players, you know, academically. But they turn out to be great CEOs. So, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no magic formula that says if you do this and do this and do this, you'll automatically succeed. It doesn't work that way. That's right. We and we learned that in reading the best and the brightest. Which yes, exactly. Is exactly that point. Yes, the best and the brightest. You're you're exactly right about that. And it's interesting because Michael, the younger generation, wasn't exposed to that. So I've had a lot of students come through. I talk about the best and the brightest. I said, Oh, you mean the People are really smart. And I said, no, no, no. People really make big mistakes. We're smart and make mistakes. My father used to say all the time, you get only one chance to make a good first impression. (laughs) That's a a smart dad. Yeah, he was a smart and wonderful man. But I think this is apropos of what you're saying is you get this window to 
establish yourself, your temperament, your judgment, your your goals. And if yeah. you are successful, your followers follow along. If you fail, then they become cynical and your leadership capabilities are undermined. And I think maybe that's the Biden presidency in some form of a nutshell at the moment. Uh, I think that's right. I, I think that's right. I, I'm not sure how he gets out of it. Yeah, I'm not sure how he gets out of it either. Let's talk about the qualities of a leader, because you, you articulate several important characteristics. The first and perhaps most important, as I read the book, was developing your what you call your true north, your north star, your moral compass. So can you talk about that as the predominant characteristic of a leader? Sure. I, I, th- I think when you start with this proposition, um, that um, the, the leader is made, not born. Uh, and I think leader, most leaders, if you study it, uh, you'll find that they're self-made. Uh, and, it, and there's a lot of work that goes into refining and developing their, their leadership capacity. Um, I, I, I do think that leadership also starts from within. You have to have yourself under better control. You have to be able to lead yourself, in effect, before you can lead others. Um, uh, and I think that has an awful lot to do. That journey starts with a, the search for your values and your principles. And those values and principles become your true north over time. They become the way you navigate your life and what you think, you know, what behavior is in, what behavior is out, what, you know, where, where, where do you stand on those kind of questions. But what you need to do in order to mobilize others in the in um, pursuit of shared goals, people need to trust you and they need to feel like your word is your bond. Um, that's an old fashioned concept, but it is as alive today as it was in, in decades and centuries past. So the leadership, the leadership is a search toward these values. Come in, they become your true north, Bill George. Who had been? Uh, it was a major, major CEO in this country, and had become a guru of leadership, um, t- teaching leaders, CEOs from all around the world. Um, he, he was a, he's the chief uh, argue, the chief proponent of a true, having a true north, and I've learned that that does make a difference. Let me just give you my experience when I first went into the White to my first White House with Richard Nixon. I was after draft reform. I was essentially recruited to come in and help continue on some things like that. Um, it's a longer story, but but nonetheless, uh, the I was working for Nixon, and I will tell you he was the best strategist that I've ever met. Maybe say Henry Kissinger, but figuratively, Nixon could go up on a mountaintop and he could look into the past and then look into the future. I remember Churchill thinking that, um, and he, he had just. You know, it was Nixon's idea and he and Kissinger to split apart the Soviets and the Chinese. You know, they were, they were joined at the hip in their opposition to the United States. And by splitting, splitting them apart as, as they, as the United States did, uh, it, you know, as a sort of divide and conquer strategy, they worked very well against the Chinese and the Russians of that period of time, back in the sixties, fifties, sixties, especially. Um, but anyway, so Nixon was, was terrific on the policy side, but he had these inner forces, these inner demons as a human being that he had never learned to control. He was, he, 
he had grievances that he allowed to build up so that he they had hatreds. And he essentially looked at the world. You were either for him, or if you weren't for him, you must be against him. He didn't accept the fact that a lot of people could be neutral. You know, a lot of people just, you know, didn't think about it much. Uh, but it, but if he felt you were against him, then he became his enemy. And then he might very well want, want to bring you down, you know. And so he would order up the damnedest projects, like let's go over and, and burn down the Brookings Institution, which was sort of like ridiculous. Um, and you never, sometimes you didn't know, is he kidding? We're not going to do that. It was sort of an early version of Trump for some people, many people. Um, and what, what, what became apparent was he didn't have his stuff together. He didn't have his act together. Nixon didn't. He didn't have that self-control. And then that burned down. You know, David Frost, a journalist, British journalist, interviewed him shortly after he fell. Uh, and he said, and Frost asked him, Mr. President, what went wrong in Watergate? How did, it, how did it end so badly? And Nixon said, I gave my enemies a sword, and then they ran me through. And I think that's what happened. He was the author of his own collapse. And he was the author because he hadn't learned and he hadn't taken the time. It takes time to develop your personality. It takes time to develop your capacity. You, you shouldn't just assume that, you know, in a, you, you can do it in a, a two-week you know, send-off in the mail kind of course. Um, you, you need to work at it. Life is tougher than we sometimes like to admit. And you have to, put, you have to, you have to deal with a lot of suffering. And you have to deal with betrayals and, and, and people who are out to get you and those kind of things. There is a dark side in human nature, which we see regularly. And you've got to be prepared to live with that. But if you keep your act together, if you, if you come through your diff- the difficult moments in life, if you keep your head straight, if you're surrounded by people who trust you and are your friends, you'll, you, you'll be fine. But, but remember, knives can come out of the dark when you're not looking. You write that developing your true north, your north star, allows you to be authentic. Yes, I've got the same that. person in public as behind closed doors, following on Polonius's counsel to his son in Hamlet on his way to Denmark. He says to his son, "To thine own self be true." And this, I think, you spoke in terms of Ronald Reagan, who's presidency I principally disagreed with as a matter of policy, but who was to his own self true and authentic person and therefore an effective communicator and, and leader. Uh, yes. And, and, uh, he, Ronald Reagan, um, I think, understood the country. He, again, was an example of someone whose instincts uh, were, were keener than his or public, you know, public intellect. He was not the smartest guy who's ever uh, been in that office. But it's not, it being the smartest guy is not the, the, the criteria we ought to apply. It, it is whether, in fact, you can lead others. And the leadership, the, the trust that you need to build up is, is something that you just have to work on over time. You, it is not something that's automatic. Increasingly now, uh, young people, before they take a job, and one of the things I admire about the younger generation uh, is that they will not, many now will not go work for a corporation that they don't regard as uh, socially, as they regard as socially irresponsible. If there's a company that and is, is doing a lot of pollution, but most young people won't touch that company. They don't want to be so, so associated with it, which I think is good. But it, so what that's really 
requires then is a set of understandings about uh, who you are and a, and a comfort level. You know, Reagan had something that was very, very important. Reagan did not need to be president in order to feel good about his life. He felt good about his life before he ran for president. And that made a big difference. There are a lot of people who who only want to get into, into public life for power. They want the praise. They want the recognition. They may want to steal from the, from the, uh, from the kitty. They may have a lot of ambitions, but they're not about, you know, how do I, how do I serve others? And the people who set out to, to serve, to live lives, to live lives of service are the ones who come back, I think, with the greatest sense of fulfillment. And they, and they become the change makers that are, that we need so desperately. Uh, Reagan, um, when I think about Reagan in terms of his values, I, I remember, uh, uh, you may think this is a strange comparison, but I remember what, what was said about Charles de Gaulle when he died, that, that he was a great leader, uh, not because, uh, not because he was in France. He was a great leader because France was in him. And I thought that was true of Reagan, that he was a very good president and a good leader, even though I disagreed with him too on, on a number of issues. Um, even though he was, uh, a very good leader. He was good because America was in him. He spoke to our, our common shared values. He believed in them. Uh, he lived by them. Uh, he was not some phony. Uh, and he didn't, he didn't like people to put on airs. He didn't like radicals. He didn't, I think he would have been very uncomfortable in today's Republican Party. Um, and I'm, he may not even have been, been able to get a nomination in today's Republican Party. But Having this sense of a true north, having a sense of the the standards by which you try to run your life, that is not to say that people don't make mistakes. People make mistakes. They deviate. They fall. They fall from grace. They they do things they shouldn't do. But but, but the but the game goes to those who make a real effort to conquer their inner impulses and the dark side of their nature. Hmm. The second characteristic of a leader that I want to talk about, and then I'd like to talk about the the journey toward leadership. The second one that you spend a lot of time writing about, importantly, is one of courage. And Churchill said of courage that it is rightly esteemed as the first human quality because it is the quality which guarantees all others. So talk about courage and how you saw it play out in your half century. um, I think think courage is is measured in two ways. One, and I do think it's Churchill was right. Uh, certainly, I'd put it right up there uh, on the top ranks of the quality a leader needs. I, I think the two biggest are courage and character, and you would add in capability as well. But those, so those three C's, I think, characterize or at least capture the, you know, what, it, what is needed. Uh, courage can be both physical courage and it can be um, social courage. Political, the physical courage We've seen lots of examples. Uh, one that I've always uh, admired, and Teddy Roosevelt is one of my favorite presidents. Um, but when he was running in 1910, sort of late in his, late in his uh, political life, uh, he, as he was standing at the podium, he was shot. He was shot in the chest. And, had it up and, there was, and he, had a, he had sort of a booklet right, on, right there where the, where the bullet struck, uh, and which prevented him, it saved his life. But he still, it still went inside him, but didn't get as far in. So he was bleeding. 
And, and people who were random said, you've got to get to the hospital. And they said, no, I'm going to get my speech. And he insisted on sending there right through the whole thing and then giving a speech and boom, he collapsed basically. I think they carried him off. Um, but it was, it was physical courage. Reagan had a lot of physical courage when he got shot. And the way he responded, he responded with humor, as you will call. You know, he, he looked at the surgeons and says, I hope you're all Republicans. And, you know, as he's wheeling into for, for life-saving surgery. And then he, that night, and he sent out a note to Nancy Nathan, uh, gee, gee, honey, I forgot to duck. Well, that's an old Gene Tunney line from boxing um, that he, you know, he pulled out and he just wrote a little note. And then he said, then he sent, sent another note out and said, all things considered, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. Well, that, that was all the W.C. Fields line that, that Reagan had learned, you know, from, from Hollywood. Um, so, and by the way, I think Reagan, more than almost any president I know, uh, had a great, he and Jack Kennedy both had a great sense of humor. And that made a big difference, I think, in their leadership. In fact, you write that one of the three booster rockets to help you become a great leader is one, learning from history, two, understanding the importance of a sense of humor and effective leadership, and three, living an integrated life. So maybe we could talk about that now since you've raised it, and then let's we'll sure. circle back for a minute and talk about inner journeys and outer journeys. Sure, sure. Well, I, I, I do think there are things that there are things that you ha- you have to have to be a good leader, uh, like good judgment and character and courage, as I said. But there are other things that sort of the add-ons that can make you extra good that I think are really important paying attention to. Uh, for example, becoming self-read, self-educated is an important part of being a, being a reader. I was, uh, Harry Truman, uh, the, uh, the one of the best presidents of the 20th century, uh, was the only president of the 20th century, never went to college. His family was too poor, and he went out and worked on the family farm behind a mule for seven years. Um, uh, and, but he read, and he read, and he read, and made himself educated, and that became terribly important in his presidency, he, exercising judgment based upon historical knowledge. Um, I was out at the Truman Library uh, some years ago, and one day I was so I was so pleased. It was such a modest library; it was really refreshing. Um, and the uh, I found a speech that Truman, Truman liked to give to high school students when they came and visited. And Truman said, "Not not every reader is a leader, but every leader is a reader." And it stuck with me. Uh, and down to our own times, General Mattis, sort of the warrior scholar, retired after with four stars, major figure, had uh, Trump persuaded him to come in to run the defense department for a while. Uh, but anyway, it was a. Um, uh, General Mattis, voracious. And when he was assigned to his, his last bill, I think, he took his books with him. You know how many books he had taken? He took to his place 7,000. 7,000 books. And he's written, if you're a general and you haven't read at least like a 75 to 100 books and he had, gave a bunch of names, he said, if you haven't done that, you're not prepared to be a good general. He feels that very strongly. So the reading part of it is really, really important. Um, and um, I think integrating your life is obviously important. The humor part, you know, Lincoln believed strongly in humor, and he said, you know, if I, if I can't laugh, I'll only cry uh, during the uh, Civil War. But uh, we like to play a lot of Trump. We like to, well, let me tell you a quick story so that I think illustrates it. I used to battle around with Pierre Salinger, who was 
Jack Kennedy's press secretary. And Salinger was, uh, said that one day he was in the Oval, he was in his office when the phone rang 11 o'clock in the morning. And it was the president who said, Pierre, come in here. Need to talk to you. He, so I went in to see, uh, see Kennedy and, Kennedy. and Kennedy said, Pierre, I know you love a good cigar just as much as I do. Yes, sir, Mr. President. Well, Pierre, I have a question. I have a favor to ask. Yes, Mr. President. I need you to get me some of Havana's finest cigars. And, uh, and, uh, and I need them pronto. Well, how's, how many do you need, Mr. President? And how soon? He said, actually, I need a thousand and I need them by tomorrow morning. Mr. President, there, that's going to be hard to do, but Pierre, you're a good man. See you later. Next morning, 11 o'clock, phone rings. Pierre, come in here and need to talk to you. Goes in. Pierre, you got those cigars? Yes, sir, Mr. President. A thousand. All of Havana's finest cigars. I have them right here. I know you're a good man, Pierre. See you later. Noon Sharp, the President of the United States, goes on national television to declare a trade embargo against Cuba. <laughs> That's a man likes has a sense of humor. <laughs> but it's important. It's really important to have that sense of humor, and especially a sort of a self-deprecating sense of humor. Yeah. You, can't, yes. you can't be Don Rickles. No. I don't think. You can't make fun of others. You have to turn it inward to build out your own humanity. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. Uh, and um, although although I must say we, we did play some pranks on each other in, in the Raven White House. <laughs> I'll tell you one quick story. The um, <laughs> there, but there's a rule in the, in the White House for adequate rule that if you get a gift in from an outside person, person, person you don't know, you got to get you got to get it out of your office within 24 hours or, or, or so, and then there has to go into a log somewhere, and then they cart them off. So you can't give, you can't be living off gifts of others. So one day, um, Jim Baker's chief of staff, Mike Devers is sort of a sidekick. I'm sort of a sidekick. Um, one day, this portrait came in to the White House. It's a portrait of Jim Baker, a large painted portrait. It was quite nice, actually, but it was big. It was like three feet by two feet or something like that. Um, and so Mike and I saw this thing, and we, we said, hey, let's grab that thing. Let's put it in the closet. So we grabbed it, put it in the closet, and waited for a time we could use it somewhere. Um, and uh, the time came for Reagan had a, had a birthday. And he was going off to Camp David, and we would usually gather with him right down in the diplomatic room, just where the helicopter is, and to give him, you know, last-minute conversation. So Dever and I got this the Baker painting, wrapped it in birthday paper, and and took it with us down to to the meeting with uh, with Reagan and Nancy as they were going off. And we said to the president, Mr. President, uh, Jim had asked us to get this this uh, wrapped up for you. And we, we brought it to you. You wanted to, say, you wanted to have, celebrate your birthday, sir. And Jim was particularly anxious that we give you this gift. And, and the president said, oh, I'd love to see it. And so he opens it. Reagan says, okay, Jim, if I open this. And Jim, very puzzled, didn't know what the hell we were doing. And he said, well, I guess so. <laughs> so Reagan opens this up, and it's a painting of Baker. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <Thank> <laughs> That's terrific. You know, for this podcast, I interviewed uh, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser about their yeah. wonderful biography of Secretary um, Baker. Yeah, yeah, it's a good, it's a good book, and so they're both fine individuals, terrific people. Yeah. So um, we have sense of humor. We have this balanced life. We have the learn from history, but a good part of the book 
you focus on what you call the inner journey and the outer journey. This is, so we've been talking about what are leaders, but I think importantly, you talk about, well, how do you become a leader? You're not, as you said, born a leader. That myth is long ago been debunked. So tell us about the inner journey. You know, it's this Oracle at Delphi, know thyself or Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. And you you talked about the importance of this inner journey towards self-awareness and identification of your values. So tell us about that journey. The theory of the inner journey is based in part on the work of Joseph Campbell uh, and a sociologist of psychology some years ago, cultural historian in some ways. Um, and he had the notion that, that, that life is sort of a the hero's journey. Uh, and it's, if you look in literature of civilizations across civilizations across time, he said, you'll almost always find this story. And that is of the prince who's in his castle when he hears that there's a damsel in distress in another castle. Um, and, he, and he decides to leave home to go out and slay the dragon and free the damsel. And so he goes out and has a, you know, a series of challenges and almost, you know, almost had a good near calamities. But he eventually gets there and he slays the dragon, saves the woman, brings her back to the castle, and they live happily ever after. That's the hero's journey. And there's a heroine's journey that sort of you know, matches that. Um, and that's what we find in, in leadership. It, it, there is a journey you make in life. And, and what you make of it, and it starts from within, coming back to that concept we discussed earlier, starts from within, uh, and it, it starts with a sense of self-awareness, and then a sense of self-mastery, making sure you don't have those demons that Nixon had, chasing them away. But your journey is to go out and to, and to accomplish something big. It's like going to the castle. You go and freeing the damsel, slaying the dragon. You want to go out and do something significant in life, not, not, necessarily, not necessarily in a, in a national sense, but it can be in your family. It can be doing saving a parent, saving a brother or sister who's addicted, all sorts of things. You, you go out and make that journey uh, to, to, to do something significant in your life. You come back and you're changed by the experience of, of pursuing something good. You're changed. You know, it, it opens you up to the possibility that your life can be one with, uh, you know, with a life uh, uh, touched by fire. It's, it's really a, a, so much of this leadership work is about discovering something about you and then discovering something that you can make a difference. And you don't have to go, have gone to an elite school. And Martin Luther King Jr. argued, all of us can serve. You, know, you don't, you, you can always be a servant leader no matter where you are in life. The inner journey that we've been talking about is then combined with what you call the outer yes, and it's really this bringing together of the inner journey and the outer journey that forms the the leaders of our world. But tell us about what is in your postulation, the outer part of the journey. We've talked about inner journey as strength and character building. Yeah. And now what is the outer journey consistent? Well, the inner journey is going to be sort of pretty central to you for your first 20, 30 years before you become, begin to, find jobs and that sort of maybe 20 years, for example. Um, but the outer journey is one when you begin to enter the outside world and you're not just a child, um, but you're somebody who's, you know, is, is moving in toward, is in the teenage years and just beyond. 
And that outer journey is is about learning how society works uh, and learning how what needs to be done in a society in order to achieve things. It's the, it's the counterpart of the inner journey. The inner journey is about self-understanding, self-mastery. Well, the outer journey is about understanding too, but it's understanding society, how it works, what the dynamics are, how people work, how you can make a difference. And then you have, and, and there are different parts of this. Most of your, your life, you're going to be working for somebody else. You're going to be a person number two, number three, or further down the list. It's, it's a, you know, over time, you may become number one in a lot of things, but usually you're in, you're in a position of number two, three, four, five, and you have to learn how to manage your boss. You have to lead and, and how to, how to uh, persuade your boss to do things. So you've got to learn a lot about leadership is learning how to lead up. Part of leadership is about learning how to lead sideways. How, how do you lead a team around you? How do you make that work? And then, then, and then there's the question of how do you make, uh, how do you collaborate with teams outside your organization? So this is a question becoming increasingly sophisticated and effective at working in groups. And that's what that outer journey is. It's your exposure to the outside world, the rubbing up against the outside world. That's your outer journey. And gradually, as you get older, you fit together the inner and the outer, and then, then and you find a balance there. And that's when you really click. That's when you really can achieve big things. Yeah, and you write that the leaders who were most successful were the ones who had a clear set of goals and a supportive team and an ability to roll with the punches. That's how you get big things done. Yes, I, I, you know, I, I think that's right. Um, and um, by the way, I really want to emphasize, we, we have changed sufficiently, but we're not there yet. There is an increasing role for women and for people of color, as I was saying earlier, that I, I do believe one of the most important challenges we now face as a country is whether we can integrate uh, into into one fabric, uh, uh, people of very different colors, uh, people with uh, different sexuality uh, identifications, uh, people who come come from sort of nowhere, uh, people who you know, had had really hard times. We have to get more people like that at the table. This does not mean that that people who are accomplished people who go to great school, big schools, etc. That doesn't mean they have to leave the table. What it does mean is we have to have a bigger table. We have to have a table that brings in and invites others to be there. This country is in grave danger. One of the grave dangers is that multi-ethnic societies in which there's no majority, there are a majority of minorities, have never survived as a, as a democracy. That's the finding of a book called How Democracies Die by two guys named Levitt, uh, who teach at Harvard. Um, and anyway, this multi-ethnic society route is something we all have to work harder at on these outer journeys. It's really important that you learn how to, to deal with uh, people of different backgrounds, different different uh, needs, um, and you need to be sensitive to it. You need to be respectful of it, just like going into that Klan rally that I did those years ago. Uh, wasn't sufficiently respectful of the people. I, you know, I still think they were in the wrong, but we didn't need to rattle them. You know, we didn't need to throw a hand grenade in the middle of it. This Stephen Levitsky book on yeah. how uh, democracies die is a critical book. Right? Very, good. Very good book. I have got two questions left, and then we'll then we'll be done. Okay. okay. So, 
you write that this journey toward leadership often involves arising over crucibles, that people, leaders encounter crucibles, which play an important part in their development. And some people crumble in the face of a crucible moment, while others use it as a growth point. And you talk about different leaders faced with crucibles. Maybe if you could talk about that now, that would be really appreciated. Sure. Well, we, we, crucibles do come into every life. Everybody, uh, everybody has moments of adversity, and it can be extreme adversity, and often very, very uh, alarming and damaging because they come out of the blue and you don't see them coming, and then you get you get floored by them. Uh, and as you say, well, the work of Martin Seligman as an academic uh, focuses on um, on the crucibles and, and where you go with them. And one of the big findings is that some people crumple and never come back. Other people uh, are better, but take about a year to recover who they were. They, through resilience, they get back up. But others are in a group by themselves, and that is they not only are resilient, but they they strengthen themselves. They strengthen their inner selves, uh, and they acquire moral purpose in life. You know, they, there's a people who've had big crucible moments often come out thinking, well, life is so fragile. I really want to leave behind a legacy of some sort in the time that I have. I don't know how much time I have. And I think overcoming crucibles is one of the most important challenges that any uh, potential leader faces. And you've just got to be, you've got to, I think uh, I, I write about more about this. You've got to have a stoic attitude. Um, you know, the Stoics were people in, in ancient Greece and Rome um, who who basically argued, like Marcus Aurelius argued, that you um, um, if, if that when you are in a, in a moment of a crucible, when you're in a real hardship moment, don't worry about things you can't control. There are some things that are going to be there that you have you have no control over. Don't spend a lot of time, a lot of energy, and a lot of stress on things you can't control. Focus on what you can control what difference you can make in your own life, what difference you can make in the lives of others, and do those things. Don't waste your energies on, on, you know, false gods. And I suppose those who do fail as leaders. You talk about the failure of leadership and this ability to recognize what you can and what you can't. And you become too arrogant, it becomes self-destructive. Right. The last thing I want to talk about, how you conclude the book, is Teddy Roosevelt's man in the arena speech. And you say it's important to be in the arena. So can you take us out of this wonderful conversation uh, about leadership by talking about being in the arena? Can I read it? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Toward the end of the book, talking about in the arena, Uh, this was a... um, speech from a speech that, uh, that Teddy Roosevelt gave uh, called The Man in the Arena. Uh, and had, were he alive now, he would certainly have included uh, women. But the full passage goes as follows. And this is, such, this is such an important statement. I can't tell you the number of people I've found who live by this statement. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, 
whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. And it is a wonderful conclusion to the book, and it's a great counterpoint to the number of people who we have in the public arena today who are just critics, who've never held a job other than to offer criticism of those who are actually in the arena trying to do good deeds. Yeah. Well said, Michael. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. I appreciate it, David, very much. The book I want, to how, I want to say how rare it is that anyone reads so carefully and so clearly. It really, really made a terrific conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you. The book is called Hearts Touched by Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. David Gergen, I appreciate you writing it. And I have to say, of course, that you have, in fact, been in the arena for over 50 years, and the country is better for it. Thank you. Thank you, sir. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.